Erin Carr, an advocate known for her writing on addiction, recovery, mental health, parenting, and relationships. Erin knows firsthand the challenges of addiction recovery and has established herself as a respected voice in the national conversation about the overdose epidemic. Erin's debut memoir, Strung Out, appeared on most anticipated lists from Apple Books, Goodreads, Self, The Rumpus, Bitch Media, and others. Of the book, The New York Times writes, Carr's buoyant writing doesn't get mired in her dark subject matter. There is an honesty here that can only come from, to put it in the language of 12-step programs, a searching and fearless moral inventory. This is a story she needed to tell, and the rest of the country needs to listen. She writes the weekly advice column, Ask Erin, on Substack, and her personal essays have appeared in Self, Mary Claire, Salon, The Times of London Magazine, HuffPost, Esquire, Cosmopolitan, and others. She lives in New York City. This was a treat. Erin is like one of the most enthusiastic guests we've ever had. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really interesting to hear kind of her her take on just kind of, you know, her energy about um, harm reduction and about just kind of listening to the way she talked about it in relation to her children, I found really interesting. No, totally. I mean, I think in terms of like recovering from not only addiction, but also trauma and like alternative models of, of uh, recovery, it's really interesting. And also, I mean, I think she's just like, she really knows her shit and it was really nice to kind of be in dialogue around that. So we hope that you love this as much as we enjoyed talking to Erin. Uh, here is Aaron Carr on Sober Sex. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got its mental growth. Sober Sex, all of this and more. Sober Sex, you'll never get bored. Sober Sex, all of this and more. Sober Sex, we're never ever bored. Creativity, authenticity. Hello and welcome. <laughs> we were just discussing how society is a myth post-COVID. No one knows what they're doing and our inboxes are embarrassing. <laughs> Completely embarrassing. Uh, and so thrillingly today we have Aaron Carr, uh, world-renowned author, and Lily Noel, our also host of Sober Sex, who is thrillingly able to join us this time because we're in the same time zone. Yes. And so this is just very exciting for all of us. Um, one sec, I'm just looking up the questions. Erin, <laughs> um, we tried to recap for the audience. We tried to record in like July mm -hmm. and it didn't work at all. <laughs> it got cucked, kicked off like four times and then we gave up, but had a nice conversation. Uh, we did. Yeah. Off, off <laughs> mic. Um, so where uh, do the pronouns she, her still work for you? Yes. Awesome. So <laughs> once again, I know this, we actually brushed this topic before getting so rudely booted from the internet the, the last time we had this conversation, but what is your experience of gender today? <laughs> so my experience with gender today is, I mean, I don't really, I, I guess primarily I'm heterosexual and female, cis, I'm a cishet female, um, but you know, I'd say that 
I really don't look at it in terms of, of in, in terms of my sexual identity. I don't look at it in terms of gender. It just kind of happens to be that's where I've landed in relationships. Um, yeah. <laughs> totally. Lils, awesome. do, you have an, do you have a gender experience today, Lily? <laughs> yeah, I, every like, day. I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we're talking to you from New York, right? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. And so how have the last couple of years been for you in terms of writing and parenting and COVID and all that? <laughs> well, my book came out like 10 days before everything completely oh. locked down. So it was really weird timing because you know, there was a lot of momentum around the book. I had a lot of amazing press. I left on book tour like the day the first deaths happened in New York. Mm. And it was kind of like, do I go? Like what's happening? How bad is this? And like my second day on book tour, everything kind of started falling apart. I like was, I was in Portland. I was supposed to go to iHeartRadio for a couple of shows and things had, had shut down at the studio because somebody had tested positive for COVID. So Four days into book tour, I realized like I had to come home and uh, I did the oh. first four events and then we canceled 17 events. So oh. that was really, you know, I know in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal, but it was heartbreaking on some level right. because I had worked, you know, obviously totally. for a long time on the book and then leading up to publication. So it was, oh. it was jarring to have been in like such like an, an era of like momentum and and travel and press and all of this. And then it just stopped. Well, especially because you had been like, I'm sure kind of isolated in the actual writing process. And then it's like all gearing up to be like extroverted (laughs) and social and presenting the work and connecting it with people and like audiences. And you're like, just kidding. I'm like a lot of writers are introverts and I'm totally not an introvert. I'm completely an extrovert. And I'm really social. So that was hard for me too. I love connecting. And like, that's one of the things I love about writing is being able to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I always look at like everything I write, even if it's fiction, it's it's sort of like a an intimate conversation between the writer and the reader. Um, I don't know. That's just for me, that's how I've always kind of approached it or how I want people to feel when they read things that I write. Um, yeah, it was hard. And I came home and I had a two-year-old and a 16-year-old at home, yeah. obviously in very different stages. It was challenging, equally challenging in different ways, having a teenager and a toddler <laughs> during lockdown. And uh, yeah, it was. I would never want to go back to those few months. Those first couple of months were really, really depressing and we were in New York the whole time. We didn't leave. We didn't like go to like a country house or, or anything like that. Like a lot of people did, you know, um, we were here the entire time. So I'm grateful that we're not there now. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was in terms of like, you know, I know for a lot of people it was hard, like being like locked in with the people they were locked down with. That wasn't really challenging except for the parenting part. But um, definitely I miss, missed having like that, that in-person connection with people. It's just, you know, I'm really happy that this happened in an era where we have the technology to stay connected to people because it would have been so much more isolating had we not. I yeah. truly can't imagine it, especially I think for people in recovery, like there's a lot of mm-hmm. like kind of constant connection just so we don't like go off the kind of deep end, you know, no matter yeah. how much time sober we have or whatever, it's just like connection is paramount. And especially like, I know like Lily, you got mad cozy during like lockdown. I think as, as a fellow introvert or like, what is it? 
extrovert and introvert, this idea mm-hmm. of like, it, it was like, well, now I don't have to talk to anybody. So that, that helps with my social anxiety, <laughs> but I'm sure like the extroverts I know really suffered. Like I think oh, about, awful. yeah, like friends, Kevin and Nico, and they're just like the most extroverted people I've ever met. And they were like, I am dying. Like I get it. Yeah. And well, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a person who like, I'm totally okay being on my own too. Like I know how to like entertain myself, but I really, really thrive on connection. So that was hard. Yeah. By the way, Louisa, I was having lunch with a friend the other day and they told me that there is something called an ambivert, which is something I think you and I might both be. Have you heard of ambivert? I have. Like BuzzFeed. (laughs) (laughs) Like where I get all of my medical information. An an ambivert can also be described, I just looked it up, as an outgoing introvert, an antisocial extrovert, or a social introvert. So it's basically, it's kind of like how I feel sometimes. Like I can kind of present as an extrovert and I do like socializing, but then I really need my time to like regroup. And like I can kind of go either way, but... Like if I'm told like, this is time to be an introvert, I'm like, hell yeah, let's dive in. Let's do it. You know, which is what happened with for two years. I still have to remind myself that I don't have to do that anymore, even though I'm not. (laughs) But I mean, has the, like the kind of reemergence into, into like a social connection life been like liberating or, and delightful, or has it been kind of like, I don't know. I feel like it's been kind of a bumpy landing on like a prop plane on this side. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about this today. Um, they work in the entertainment industry and they were t- like relaying a story about like having a meeting and like this certain person in the meeting was really, really awkward and kind of, <laughs> it's challenging, I think for people, even like a professional sense, like being in person in meetings again. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I living in New York, even during lockdown, I was like, I'll be the designated store runner. So I was the person who left the house every day to go to the grocery store and any errands that needed to be run, which were limited, obviously. But I interact with people just going to get coffee in the morning and do, right. you know, do go about like my daily life. So I don't have, I think that I had still kept up some level of like socialization. I live in an apartment building. There are the other people here, the staff of the building, all of that kind of like, which seems like all like minute interaction. But like when I lived in LA, I could go for a long period of time without really interacting because I'd get Mm -hmm. in my car and like drive somewhere, not really talk to anyone in a store, get back in my car, drive home. You can really isolate if you live in a car centric um, city. That's so true. Because even like the smallest interactions of just seeing someone in the hallway, brushing up against someone in the subway, whatever, like those things are human interaction or just like observing other people. But it is true. Like I've felt more isolated in LA, I think, than I've ever felt, even if I didn't talk to anyone Mm -hmm. all day in the other places I am. You know what I mean? It's interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I, I really think I live, you know, I've only lived in New York, Paris and Los Angeles and I was much happier always in Paris and New York because I think that I need that. I need to be like forced to sort of interact even when I feel like I don't want to, because it always makes me feel better. It gets me out of my own head um, and like in back in like a physical space. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I have the same experience of like Paris and New York, I just feel more in the stream of life. Yeah. 
LA, I kind of can feel like I'm like, you know, for the analogy here, like just sitting on the bank, watching everything go by, but like, I don't really feel a part of life, you know, whereas you just kind of invariably are in the flow of life while you're here, Mm -hmm. which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny though. It's like, cause I recently moved to like 80 minutes outside of Paris and Mm -hmm. in LA, I feel like I'm having like a manic like a manic time no matter what like there's always like too many people I get like I feel like adrenal fatigue from like too much social interaction Mm -hmm. but but here like it's I feel like part of the stream of life because I'm like picking blackberries and feeding them to the horse while on the horse like throwing them at the dog and I'm like is this not paradise and then when like I interact with a human being I'm just like my meat suit's broken. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I can't, I can't connect. This is so difficult. <laughs> so I don't know. It gets like, it gets fucking weird. Like without yeah. kind of constant, if you're used to constant social interaction, kind of by the the nature of your daily rhythm and then like right. that no longer exists. <laughs> Shit's a trip. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so you cover so many subjects that are near and dear to us here on Sober Sex, including, but not limited to addiction, shame, anger, trauma, intimacy, parenting, mental health, and recovery. And you also write Ask Aaron, uh, which is an advice column that deals with sex and dating and relationships. Um, to better understand why you might be so qualified, not that I'm reading this or anything, right. <laughs> um, uh, through abundant experience to give advice on some of this stuff, we pivot to the show's anchor question, uh, which should perhaps come with a trigger warning. But what were the first messages that you received around sex and sexuality? I mean, I think that the first messages that I received were unconscious messages, right? Like for most of us, um, I was sexually abused at the age of four and I didn't tell anyone until I was 19 and it went on like off and on for years. And, uh, as I sort of came into early adolescence, like around the age of 13, which is like when I started really getting into drugs, I, you know, I I grew, I was suddenly like 5'8", which is the height that I am now. And people thought I looked older. And I recognized that um, my youth and my gender and my sexuality were currency and gave me power, but also they were also a source of shame. And that it was like this dual messaging. I think that for, you know, certainly my experience of growing up as a cishet female in America was, you know, your value is in your, is in your sexuality and you should be ashamed of it. Yeah. Which are like really how fuckable are Yes. But also, also fuck shame. you for being fuckable, yeah. you slut. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's really like what the messaging is. And so I definitely used that currency to get what I wanted in terms of validation, attention, affection, um, control. I mean, it really, from a really early age, recognize that and recognize that if I, uh, if I withheld emotion, but gave myself physically that I retained power, which is a really unhealthy way (laughs) to operate in the world. But it gave me this, this yeah, it gave me this false sense of control that I was desperately looking for because I felt so, my boundaries, my physical boundaries had been so violated from such an early age that I just didn't have, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had any control over anything. And that gave me a sense of control. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Well, do you think, I'm just curious, do you think at that age, do you think you like 
I mean, probably not as clearly as you realize now, but do you think that you realize that that's kind of like that you had those realizations or did you just behave in ways that sort of like, I relate to that because I Mm -hmm. definitely seem to realize that stuff, but I don't know if I really got, got it at the same time. Does that make sense at all? Like, yeah. I mean, I think it was like, it was sort of like a, it probably revealed itself to me over time, Yeah, but I definitely understood early on, like the act of withholding Yeah, and I withheld parts of myself and it, especially like going as I got a little bit older, like into like college age, I withheld sort of like parts of myself or withheld my love and affection. And I had this pattern that I would, you know, meet people. I I mean, I had a, I was in an open relationship for a while and I would meet people and say like, you know, we can date, but like it can't really go anywhere. So just know that up front. And people would always be like, yeah, yeah, cool. And then invariably they wouldn't be cool. So I realized the more that I withheld from men, the more that they wanted. And it made me feel in control. I was like, well, you can't hurt me because I'm the one withholding. Yes. Which is really Um, fucked up. And I was aware of it. I mean, not, not, you know, I I didn't dissect it the way that I probably did as I (laughs) I grew up and kind of went through a lot of therapy and, and evaluated sort of like my own toxic behavior in relationships so that I could have a healthy relationship. But at that time, it served a purpose for me. Totally. I mean, how, like, I, I do wonder how though, because I feel like my like 18 year old self is like very jealous because that was definitely mm-hmm. my MO, but it always backfired on me. Like I was always mm-hmm. the one who was like, I don't give a fuck about anything. And then like deeply, deeply like writing songs, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like sad, mad poetry about like how I feel like a husk of a person. And also I am brokenhearted. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, you know, it's funny because like I didn't, I didn't, um, it's not that I never got hurt. I certainly got hurt, but I usually, it was usually at my own hand for, and I, I think that I set it up that way so that it still gave me a sense of control. So like I had, I felt like it was really difficult for me to have sex with people who I felt emotionally intimate with. Mm. So if I had sex with somebody right away, then I had a wall up and then I wouldn't really give anything. I mean, like there was like a wall as open as I was with people. I wasn't really emotionally intimate with them. And then, you know, I think the other thing too, is that like, I always felt like, and for a while it was unconscious. And then it became a conscious thing where like I had an, I called it like an ace in my pocket where I would always cheat or I would be secretly doing drugs because then if that person hurt me, I had already fucked them over. So it was like a wash. Like I wasn't, it was really every relationship. I had some secret or something that I had that they didn't know about so that if they hurt me, then it was like, well, you didn't really hurt me because I had already hurt you. You just didn't know it yet, which is so, so fucked up and unhealthy. But that was like my survival mechanism. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. So how did it keep unfolding from there, like up to today? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously like during those periods of time, like, like when I, like all of like my early twenties, I was, you know, in a constant cycle of like relapsing. I went to rehab the first time at 23 and then, you know, so much of my drug behavior was also tangled with my relationship behavior. 
And to kind of backtrack, sorry to interrupt, but you you said you discovered drugs at like 13 and like... Well, earlier. (laughs) I mean, the first time time I I took a pill like purposely, I was eight. I was having a panic attack and I didn't know it was a panic attack. I went into the bathroom and like found, we had like an expired bottle of Darvocet, which is a painkiller. And I... I didn't even know what it was, but it had a label on it that said may cause drowsiness with like the little man with the bubbles around his head. Um, I don't think there was like a child safety thing. This was like the 80s. So (laughs) there probably wasn't. Um, I took one and it, you know, it worked. It gave me sort of that layer of protection, not even from other people, but like from my own feelings. Like I needed a buffer from myself. And from that point forward... I started stealing pills like from my, like whenever we were at like a relative's house on a holiday, I would go into their medicine cabinet and just anything that had a drowsiness label on it, I wouldn't take the whole bottle. I'd take one or two pills and like put them in my pocket and save them. And I was talking to a friend about this recently and I did this like all through like my teenage years and into my twenties was always taking pills from people. And we were talking about that how so often I'd be like, I don't know what this is. Do you want one? And we like how stupid it would be. Like, you know, now yeah. there's like fentanyl and everything. And yeah. Crazy. But also the idea that it, like, it really never was for fun. It was like, I need no. out right now. Like it was a survival so, mechanism. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, like my, my, my drug story was very much about control, you know? And like, I always say like my, my, like, need for control always put me out of control. And Mm -hmm. that was certainly true with drugs. You know, I mean, I was the person who I started doing heroin at 13, didn't tell anyone. My parents didn't know I had a boyfriend. Most of my friends didn't know I had a boyfriend. And then like I hid my addiction, which was heroin for a couple of years. And then I stopped and then it was like a lot of pills and then like everything else. And people knew, like my friends and teenagers knew that like I used the way that they did like here and there, but I hid so much of it. So nobody knew really anything until I got caught when I was 23. So it was like a, de- a decade of, of using. And, uh, you know, because we would go, like I wasn't out getting drunk with people. I didn't mm-hmm. smoke pot. Like I wasn't like, I wasn't doing any of the things that other people were doing. Not a party you know? girl. Yeah. No, I mean, I like, you know, I mean, I did like, would do like, you know, do acid or mushrooms or, you know, ecstasy or like whatever, like out with people, but just, but that part, like the, the opiates was really like the thing that I kind of either minimized they certainly didn't know about the heroin, but I, even with the pills, like would minimize or hide completely. I mean, I found that like in recovery, it took a while to stop, like the sneaky shit was very that was some of the more addictive stuff, like the behaviors and like feeling like, as you said, like I had an ace in my pocket in every situation. Cause I had like something that I knew about that other people didn't know about. Yeah. And I, I wonder like how, I mean, you said you went to treatment at 23 and I wonder like mm-hmm. how, 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 how did you eventually get sober? But also like, how did the behaviors start to shift? So I think that like, you know, I went to, I was engaged at the time Um, and my broke up with my fiance while I was in rehab really because I had like, I mean, a, I I knew like he wasn't going to forgive me or I felt like I didn't want to, I couldn't 
stand the thought of like sitting through more family groups <laughs> and like going through all of it with him. And also truthfully is because like I was interested in somebody else I met in rehab, you know, I was, that behavior was just on. It definitely like, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the addiction just would like shift to men. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for sure my behavior around men didn't really change in sobriety. Um, and then I relapsed and didn't tell anyone. And then I overdosed and didn't tell anyone. I mean, I was with a friend, thankfully, who saved my life. And then um, she was somebody who I had gotten into drugs and was one of the few people that kind of would know what was going on with me. And she was really the only person at that time. And she and I made a pact to like never use a needle again. And we didn't, which I, I think back now I'm like, that's a miracle. <laughs> like Total I don't know miracle. <laughs> because I kept using like off and on for another five years, but we never used a needle again. And because I didn't, I think I just, I was, she was so traumatized by it that I was like, I don't want anyone to find me like that. So, I mean, also I think speaks a lot to the idea of like, even at our very worst, the, the, the like, accountability and friendship is important even when we're being mm-hmm. total scumbags and like yeah. doing a ton of drugs together to at least have somebody know what's going on will actually save our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, with her, there was also like a real codependent part of our friendship too, because before when I had started using again, like I told her, and I really minimized it. And then I was in a situation once where I was really dope sick and like I was working on set and I couldn't go. And I ba- like basically talked her into going, she wasn't doing drugs. I like talked her into going to score for me <laughs> and she did. And then she was going through a breakup and wanted to try it. And then we were just kind of off and running together and we relapsed together many, many times and like lied for each other and and whatnot. But, um, yeah, so then it was sort of like the next, you know, after that first stint in rehab, I had like a you know, few years of like relapsing all the time and hiding it. And I was in relation, you know, I had like a, during that period of time, I had a like a almost three year long relationship with somebody where most of the time I was hiding it. He was in recovery as well. And then at the very end, we used together for like a couple weeks and then we both stopped and then broke up. And then I, I just kept relapsing. I mean, it was, you know, ongoing, went to rehab again. And, you know, the way that I look at relapse in general, when it comes to recovery is that it's not, you know, of course it's not necessary. It's not a necessary part of the process, but I think it's a very normal part of the process. And there is, there is a process in recovery of, of like sort of moving along a line where you're getting closer to long-term recovery. Like with each time that I stopped, I learned something new that I took with me the next time that I stopped. So it was like building, like kind of like I was still collecting those building blocks. I didn't waste that time that I had put in in recovery in between. What finally got me to stop, I was, you know, using again. I was in like an unhealthy relationship and I found out that I was pregnant. I had had an abortion a couple of years before that that like set off a really bad relapse and had been, you know, a really challenging thing for me. And I don't know why I decided I was going to go through with the pregnancy. made no sense. I'm totally pro-choice. I have no idea why I didn't just get an abortion, but I decided I was going to have this baby. And But I was strung out. 
So I had to find a doctor who would detox me without putting me on methadone. And at the time they were using um, buprenorphine to detox people. You know, I, I don't think Suboxone was around then, but they were using buprenorphine already. So I found a doctor who detoxed me over the course of seven days um, while I was three months pregnant or like yeah, three and a half months pregnant. Um, and I made a commitment that I was just going to stay off of drugs like during my pregnancy. I was really kind of ambivalent about being a mother. I didn't think I was going to be a good mother. Nobody thought I was going to be a good mother. Like my parents had like, you know, meetings with my ex-husband who I ended up marrying while on drugs <laughs> um, about, you know, like contingency plans for like when I relapsed, not if I relapsed. But when my son was born, I had like one of those sort of lightning bolt moments of, you know, I just, the first time that I held him, I just looked at this like baby who I'd felt like no connection to during pregnancy, truthfully, but looked at him and I just was like, I had that like overwhelming thought go through me. Like, I love you more than I hate myself. Mm. And that was really, really powerful. I... I just knew that I wasn't going to use again, which I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. And like, then it doesn't go right, you know, and, and certainly that's not what kept me in recovery, but it was the sort of like kickstart that I needed to do the real work. And for me, the real work was a lot to do with cognitive behavioral therapy, staying on psychiatric medication, um, talk therapy, and I mean, it was mostly cognitive behavioral therapy, kind of like retraining those neural pathways and and learning coping mechanisms that I just didn't have. Um, you know, I'd been using drugs as a coping mechanism since I was eight years old uh, and I was 28. It was like, what am I going to do now? This has been 20 years of not really learning how to handle life. And uh, But I did and I was fortunate that I had you know, I mean, as dysfunctional as my family was, they were supportive. And then I had health insurance and I had access to mental health care is a huge, huge component. I don't know how I would have done it otherwise. I started in 12-step programs when I went to rehab the first time. And it it laid the foundation for me, certainly, but it wasn't, it really wasn't the answer for me. I really, really needed, I needed like mental professional mental health care to deal with my trauma, really. That's really interesting. And thank you so much for kind of like the full arc, because it's really like, it's kind of, it's, it is a miracle. You say like, it's a miracle to stop using needles, but like this idea of like, it sounds like the birth of your son is like within 12 step kind of language was a spiritual experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Oh yeah. That was like the miracle of all miracles that you, to love something more than you hate yourself is such a beautiful mm -hmm. way to put it. But, but, you know, like on sober sex, we're, we're mostly familiar with the kind of 12 step path, although we have done some cool interviews with people who are like doing other methodologies of, of recovery. And like, mm -hmm. can you describe kind of some of the, the stuff around CBT mm -hmm. and like the, like what was effective for you that, that 12 step wasn't necessarily speaking to, because I think mm -hmm. like, we're really curious, you know, just because yeah. it's not a one size fits all solution necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that, you know, and, and it may have, it's changed probably, I mean, I think it probably depends on <clears throat> which meetings you go to, too. I think it probably varies from meeting to meeting, but 
in Los Angeles at that time. There was, you know, I, I there were plenty of meetings to choose from. I had a large community there. But this idea that if I didn't do it exactly the way the 12 steps laid out, that there was no other way for me to recover felt awful because I I did work the 12 steps in earnest multiple times. And I wasn't like, you know, I've had this discussion with friends who are in 12-step programs now. And, you know, they're like, well, maybe, you you know, you, you just didn't have the right sponsor. You didn't really work. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, when I say that I wanted it and I worked those steps and I did the 90 meetings in 90 days and I had commitments and I had a sponsor and I worked with my sponsor, it wasn't enough for me. I think that for me, the root of my addiction wasn't that I was born an alcoholic. I think that I had severe trauma and mental health issues. And that's not to discount what 12-step programs do for people, but in my experience, they work for far less people than they should. (laughs) And I, I was met with like a lot of shame on like the relapsing part of it. Um, I felt so much shame about relapsing, so much shame. And I also witnessed a lot of, you know, I I remember this one time, this was while I was still going to 12-step meetings and there was a, I had a friend who he kept just relapsing and relapsing and relapsing and some other mutual friends were like made some comment about it. And I was like, I'm like, dude, you were like turning tricks four years ago. Like, don't, like, you can't have, like, you're going to sit here and be like all tough love with this guy because he's having a hard time getting it. Like that kind of stuff just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't ring true for me. I can't, I don't think that, I don't believe in like the sort of like the way things were when I sort of came into recovery was very much like, you know, you cut people off completely it's all tough love. And I don't believe in tough love. I believe in boundaries, but I don't believe in cutting people out of your life, even if they're using. And obviously I say this as somebody with 19 and a half years in recovery. Okay. So like for me now, like if I, somebody could shoot heroin and smoke crack in front of me and it's not going to trigger me. Somebody who has like six months, they got to do what they've got to do to protect their recovery. But I think that you know, I also look at, look at like sort of the recovery world now. And, you know, there are a lot of people, especially coming off of opiates who stay on, on medicated assisted treatment long-term, whether, you know, less, less so now with methadone, but, you know, things like Suboxone and other buprenorphine based medications. And back in the day, I would have said, well, that's not, they're not really sober. That's not really recovery. I went off my psychiatric medication multiple times because I had people would say things like, well, you're not really sober if you're taking Wellbutrin. And I was like, you know, I was like, well, I'm like, it doesn't get me high. And they're like, but it's a mind altering substance. And I know that that's not the case for every 12 step group. And again, like I know it's changed, but like that messaging really messed with me because I had shame about needing psychiatric medication I had feelings like maybe I imagined that I needed it and I didn't really need it and there was something wrong with me for needing it. And I think like, 
I've just seen so many people get sort of pushed out of the rooms with this hard line. And it's like, no, fuck you. No, like anybody else's recovery is no one's business but that person. If they have to stay on Suboxone the rest of their life, that's still recovery. Recovery is about recovering your life. It's not about abstinence. And I didn't really have that understanding in the beginning. You know, um, I... I think that like, you know, and I think that in general, like I said, things have shifted much more toward a harm reduction model. And that's what I advocate for, um, especially now with with fentanyl being in everything and everywhere. Yeah, it's so terrifying. I mean, especially because it's it like this idea of people who are not addicts, like they're trying something for the first yes. time, dying, yes. you know, like that's such a scary thing. And I mean, I also think that like, you know, the initial attention of, of like the 12 step model was not necessarily like what has become the culture of, of mm-hmm. 12 step groups. And I think that that's important to speak to because I, you know, the whole, like it's repeated over and over again, that the idea is to be like helpful, not judgmental, yeah. helpful, not judgmental. And like, right. I think it's very easy to like, especially, you know, with people who are essentially like mentally ill with like an ego disorder, <laughs> to be yeah. like, you're doing it wrong. You know, it's our favorite, but I think it's really helpful to kind of, especially like with the show, you know, I, I can very tend, very much tend to kind of fundamentalist, like hardcore 12 step ideologies. And like, it's been so humbling and helpful to be like, maybe it's not the only way. And maybe it's like, Mm -hmm. in fact, ineffective to be like, it's this way or the, or the highway, so to speak. So thank you so much. And I think that like a lot of times too, when you talk, when people talk about like, well, they stopped going to meetings and now they're just out there. But what does that mean? Because I, there are so many people I know who got sober around the same time that I did. And some of them smoke pot now. And that's like, okay, like what they all have jobs and lives and families and are doing well. And like, they're not, you know, getting DUIs or they didn't fall off the edge of the planet. I mean, I'm not saying that that's what, I'm not advocating for anyone to do any one thing, but I'm just saying that like, it's not, somebody's not a failure if they don't do recovery the way 12-step programs do recovery. And I, I didn't really get, like, I, I didn't have the sort of like that breadth of, of awareness when I was first in recovery. And now I think like I'm real anything, like whatever works for you. You know, like one of the things that helped me more than anything in my recovery was Kundalini yoga. And I'm not a super woo woo person, (laughs) but I went, I started going to like these mommy and me Kundalini yoga classes. And for the first time in my life, I learned how to sit in my body like, and breathe and to be present in my body because all my life, everything I did was about disassociating from my body. I didn't want to be in my body. I wanted to be elsewhere. I I wanted to disconnect. (laughs) And so to be able to learn how to like sit in my body in this very physical way was amazing. I, and that wasn't why I started going to yoga. I, hadn't, I was just going as something to do with my baby. <laughs> no, but um, it's so beautiful because like, you speak to a lot of, I think, helpful technologies for recovery of, of many different kinds. You know, we're not mm-hmm. kind of like 12-step alcohol specific here, mm-hmm. but this idea of like 
you know, to, especially speaking to kind of sober sex that like there's whole swaths that are very difficult to kind of weave into the culture of 12 step just because Mm -hmm. it's like almost too pathologized when they wrote, you know, the basic text of what became many 12 step programs, this idea, like they just didn't have the language for it. It was the fucking 1930s. So like, what else can we do to kind of, as you say, recover lives and like CBT or for me, it's like been gestalt therapy and like Mm -hmm. Kundalini yoga or training. And like, how can it be a kind of, how can we share holistic practices for, for getting back into our bodies and our lives and a relationship Mm -hmm. in ways that feel like, like, like the the miracle of actually being able to be present. Exactly. And I think like that, you know, and I, I don't have anything against 12 step programs. I mean, they saved my life. They laid the foundation for me and I know so many people who are still in them. It's not, you know, it's just, I think that when I look at the people who've when I say long-term recovery, I mean, people like most of the people I knew when I got sober were also like recovering from heroin, right? So some of them drink and smoke pot now with and non-problematically. And I'd never suggest that to anyone because I think it's a crapshoot. <laughs> but, you know, that's their their situation. Some people I know still go to meetings. Some people I know don't do any of that. And like, they've just kind of like, you know, found whatever they've found, whether it's something spiritual or therapy and and whatever they're passionate about. Um, and I think that there's room for all of those things, right? I mean, the important thing is that, like, we recover our lives, we contribute something to the world, and that we stay alive. And so... That's successful recovery for me when I look at at recovery because I've also seen so many people who just, they only were like focused on that there was this one path and a lot of them are dead now because they mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't, they didn't know they could try these other methods or they didn't feel like they had permission to or were convinced that that wasn't true recovery and that breaks my heart, you know. It really, really breaks my heart. There are some people, you know, like the in the rooms you hear, like, you know, some are sicker than others. Like there are a lot of people in the rooms who need mental health care. Yeah. And your sponsor is not a licensed clinical social worker or a psychiatrist or a therapist. They are just another person struggling with a, who's who has who's in recovery from addiction or alcoholism. So um, I I hope that that culture has changed in the rooms. I think it has shifted somewhat, but I also think that people still come up against it. Um, Just because I have friends who are in 12-step programs who have a lot, you know, have maybe, you know, like six, seven, eight, nine years who who probably need some psychiatric medication and feel like they can't, can't go there. And that makes me really sad because the difference in my life (laughs) when I finally was just like, okay, I just need to be on this medication. It's huge. And, and, you know, I know it's just going to be different for everyone. Well, I know that when I was in treatment for like dual diagnosis, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) being mentally ill and also Mm -hmm. a drug addict, that it was really helpful to find out about like dual recovery anonymous. Sorry for the intense, like scraping noises. 
<laughs> they're just like banging and singing outside the house. Anyway, um, that this idea of like actually going off your meds, not necessarily mm-hmm. counts as a relapse, but it's like sobriety is being medicated if you have an issue that needs medication, mm-hmm. you know? And I mm-hmm. thought that that was like such a healthy way to kind of support, but like nobody knows about it because the only place I've ever heard about is in treatment, you know? Right, but right. Dual Recovery Anonymous, check it out if you have dual recovery needs. Yeah. I mean, and there's so many more, you know, like I don't think there was smart recovery around when I was in the rooms. I mean, maybe there was, but I wasn't aware of it or like Dharma recovery. There's all these other recovery models and that's great. Let's make them available to people. Like let's, we don't need to, it doesn't have to be one way or nothing. It doesn't have to be so black and white. And, you know, again, like especially for opiate addicts, there are some people that they can't do it without medicated assisted treatment. And I would rather that they're on medication if they're on Suboxone the rest of their lives. What do I care? They're they're not high. They're functioning. They have jobs and families and a life and happiness. Like I had a friend who took his own life earlier this year <clears throat> after he had like trouble. Like he had been on Suboxone for a long time and they he'd had a mental health crisis and was hospitalized and the doctor there had cut his dose and he was trying to just get back to like the regular dose and didn't and he took his life and I just that stuff infuriates me because we shouldn't deny people medication just because it has a potential for abuse the same way that I feel about like with far you know the whole big pharma thing with the the opioid lawsuits and everything pain medication should be prescribed to people who have pain don't punish them because other people will used it incorrectly. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm not like an anti-medication person. It serves a purpose. They're neutral substances. Even fentanyl is a neutral substance. It is not, it is not the devil. It is just, it was created, you know, medical fentanyl was created to help people going with severe pain, you know, post-surgery, post-cancer treatment. And obviously, you know, they create black market fentanyl is, 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 created to, you know, make it more potent and cheaper high. But, you know, they're just, they're all just neutral substances. And the less that we demonize them, the better it is for everyone, because we're not really going to get to the root of the problem. Yeah. Which is I don't, yeah. yeah. Even in as as much as alcohol is, right. Mm -hmm. That it's like, it is legal. It is available. You know, this idea that it's like, our responsibility is actually to deal with the alcoholism or the addiction, not so much like hundred percent substances. But then when, you know, you see like the kind of predatory big pharma, like scary shit. I don't know. <laughs> I recently saw it Dope is, Second, yeah. which is like ruined by it. So, yeah, for well, sure. L- listen, did pharmaceutical companies have a hand in the opioid crisis? Certainly. But you don't give, but most of the people who became addicted were not taking you know, there was a very small percentage of people who were given opiates for pain that then became uh, addicted because there's a difference between physical dependence and addiction, right? Most of the people who then began like sort of like abusing the system or whatever, like like whether it was the, on the, the side of these sort of like pill mills or whatever, these were not people who for the most part, were introduced to to opiates because they were prescribed them innocently because of a procedure. There are some people, but it's a really small percentage. 
it still baffles me <laughs> that there were doctors who thought like, oh, this isn't addictive. Like, like I mean, I could have told them it's an opiate. Like, of course, there's going to be a physical dependency, <laughs> component <laughs> of physical dependency. Like, but you know, on the, you know, on the flip side of that, with like the, you know, I know we're going off on a little bit of a tangent, but one of the issues I have with the big lawsuits against opioid manufacturers is that much like the tobacco lawsuits in the 90s, there are no regulations for how these cities and states use the money that they get. So like in the 90s when um, cities and states sued big tobacco, they got all this money and then they used it for whatever they needed it for. So it could be like to like repair potholes or da da da. If it if we knew it was going toward prevention, and by prevention I mean mainly mental health care. I mean that's like your biggest prevention and treatment for any for all of this is meant adequate mental health care. Mm-hmm. Um, that infuriates me. It's like a, it's it it gives us like this false sense of justice being served, and it's not really because yeah. the money isn't really going to go where it's needed. I mean, I could have <laughs> like a big, a big part of like what I, <clears throat> a big part of like what I sort of do now is I do a lot of advocacy and lobbying with <clears throat> drug policy reform and access to medicated and assisted treatment and harm reduction services because the success rates of people who end up accessing treatment through harm reduction is so much higher than people who are like court ordered to go to rehab or, or, you know, sort of forced in through intervention. How did you get kind of started on the advocacy tip? Because I mean, I think like such a big part of any kind of recovery, it can be just like being of service, you know, Mm -hmm. regardless of a 12 step model or not. And it sounds like you've really kind of tapped into something powerful. That's more about kind of like on a political and like, mm-hmm. yeah, scale as opposed to kind of necessarily, I mean, and maybe in addition to person to person stuff. I mean, I started doing a lot of public speaking, like to medical professionals and law enforcement, um, sometime to like some parenting groups, things like that about, about drug education, about drug policy, about harm reduction. And out of that, it just sort of naturally kind of grew that way because I think especially, you know, since 2016, just there's so much in terms of our government and in terms of the state of things that feels so out of control and overwhelming and depressing. And it like, I'm like, oh, like, it's like, feels like like a death march to the end of civilization. (laughs) Yes. So when I feel that way, I always think of like, I mean, I always sort of like give this advice to people when they feel overwhelmed by things like this. Like you have to go back to like, what can you do in your own community? Right. So it could be like, for me, sometimes it's been like at our synagogue, like they have a Sunday lunch program that has been in existence and never missed a Sunday. And like, I don't know, like a hundred years or something insane going and like making sandwiches and being of service in that way. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, there, there's a large unhoused population in any major city, including New York. And it's about like, I'm not the person who's ever afraid to talk to somebody who may seem unstable and or on drugs, who's on the street, treating them like a human being. And certainly talking to people about 
my experience and about the statistics around drug use, drug prevention, and drug treatment is a passion of mine. I think that we, you know, in the last year, I have had a lot of conversations with people, strangers who've reached out or been connected to me through people I know who've lost children, like under, you know, 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds to overdose. And so this is like, you know, part of like what I can do is talk to parents about how to talk to your kids about drugs. You know, I mean, and as a mom, like, especially to, as a mom to an older, elder teenager, like, mm -hmm. how do you have those conversations? Like we recently had Jessica Leahy who wrote a book Mm -hmm. called the addiction, addiction inoculation on, she was super, super informative, Mm -hmm. but like, how do you kind of go about having those conversations? Cause recently one of our hosts became a mother and, (laughs) and, uh, we're, we're really interested in in the parenting end of sober sex. (laughs) So I always tell people that like talking to your kids about drugs happens really early, earlier than you think. And it doesn't start with talking about drugs. It starts with talking about emotional regulation. And, you know, so I have right now, I have a five-year-old and a 19-year-old. So with the five-year-old, I think it's really important from a really early age to talk to kids about whatever it was you struggled with at their age, right? So if you struggled with being able to sit still in class, or if you struggled with like separation anxiety or whatever it was, you don't have to ask them anything. It's like you start those conversations by sharing things. And that's what I did with my older son is that I always shared things with him in a really transparent and age-appropriate way. Before he turned 13, I had the conversation with him and told him about my history with drugs. Um, you know, and the, the first line of my book is, Mom, did you ever do drugs? Which was a question he asked me because we were watching something on the news about a woman who was found dead from an overdose in New York. Uh, She was like a dermatologist, kind of like living a double life. And I didn't know how to answer that question. I was afraid to answer that question. So in a way, like I kind of was like, this book is like answering that question. So I talked to him about what I struggled with and why I turned to drugs and sort of like what the results were. And I have never, I'm not a person that believes in saying, you know, just say no, like, you know, whatever you do, don't try it. Or, you know, it's unrealistic. Like kids are going to experiment with things to varying degrees. So many people I know experimented with drugs that never, ever had a problem with drugs, but experimented in high school or college um, or later or whatever. I, so as he, you know, came into his teenage years, the big talk was harm reduction. And so like, one of the things that I suggest that everyone do and I did with my older son is that they should be trained on how to use naloxone, which is what reverses an overdose. And um, there are most states, there are a few states that have weird rules. Um, I don't know what it's like in Europe, but in in like in New York, for example, you can do a free training. And then with that, you have like a little card, which also like ensures you liability insurance. So like Nobody can sue you for administering naloxone, but naloxone isn't going to harm anybody if if you administer it, right? It's very easy to administer. I have a huge supply of fentanyl testing strips. I have forced them into my son's backpack. And, you know, as much as he's like, oh, you know, rolled his eyes at me a few times. I'm like, it's not, it's not even necessarily for you. If somebody, you know, you guys are going out and somebody's like, I'm going to do Molly tonight. Well, guess what? Like 40% of the Molly in New York has fentanyl in it. So 
this is, you know, you can scrape a tiny bit off, add a little bit of water, put the testing strip in, and at least they'll know. Even if they still decide to do it, maybe they'll take a quarter of it instead of the whole thing and see how it affects them first. It's like all those sorts of things. Like, And it's not like there's no judgment from me if he experiments with drugs. I've told him this repeatedly. Like, you know, of course, like, do I want him to go down the same path I did? Of course not. But I don't have any control over that. I can only give him information. And the information is, I don't want you to die. These are the ways you don't die. And that I am always here. And there's nothing that he's going to come to me with where I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to like, he's not going to be punished. I'm not going to be angry. I just want him to stay alive. That's it, you know. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so different and scary out there now. I mean, I... Like one of my dream goals is to be able to create a curriculum with the Department of Education that really focuses on harm reduction, you know, much the way that like in the 90s, they were like, the big debate was like, should they be allowed to give out condoms at school? You know, like if they go to the nurse's office, to me, they should have fentanyl testing strips starting in middle school. You know, I mean, it's last week. There were um, two high school girls, like 15-year-olds in L.A., in Hollywood, who had bought, they bought like something they thought was Percocet, and it was fentanyl, and one died, and one was like in critical condition in the hospital, and like this, there were like other teenagers that were selling it. They didn't know there was fentanyl in it, you know? I mean, this is, this is really what I tell parents, like, I know you don't want to believe that your kid is ever going to do this. The problem is, is that they may just be trying like something that they think is a Xanax or a Percocet, or they're going to do Molly and go to a rave, you know, because those are back again. (laughs) And you would rather, trust me, you want your kid alive. Like that's the bottom line. Nobody is going to, to, to recover if they're dead, you know. So that's really like what I'm passionate about is like how can we create open conversations so that there's less shame around experimentation, less shame around addiction. You know, like I look at even my, in my own family with my parents, my parents were so shocked when they found out shocked. And, you know, my dad was like the CEO of a a big company and like, this was just like, you know, the worst thing ever. And like, he didn't want anyone to know. Did you have addiction or alcoholism in your family outside of of you? Or were you like truly the black sheep? I mean, I mean, I was the black sheep, but there was, but like, you know, there was alcoholism or addiction on both sides of the family. It just wasn't really talked about, but I was (laughs) the only person like doing heroin, you know? Um, but now, like, you cut to, like, when my book came out, like, my dad would, like, anybody who, like, came to his house for dinner, he's like, oh, my daughter has a book coming out. And he's not, like, he doesn't talk about it with shame anymore. Like, that's a huge, huge shift. And I that's why, you know, I'm like, let's just talk about it. Like, it's okay. I'm. It's not, like, it's not the end of the world. It's, you know... <laughs> So often when I, when I was doing interviews for the book, they're like, you know, are you, you know, do you feel like nervous about this information being out there? And I really, really don't like, I carried shame about it for so long, so, so long. And like, I'm don't have shame about it. Like 
sure, I would do things differently if I could go back, save myself some pain, like cause less pain for other people. But I don't feel shame about it. You know, where what I want my children to learn from is that like I fell on my ass again and again, but you know what? I fucking got up and I I accepted responsibility for not just my actions, but like for taking care of my mental health, for not being ashamed that I needed help. And like, I just don't have the shame about it. And it's funny because people really want you to still feel shame about it. They really do. Like my, like the, the negative Goodreads reviews are inevitably about that either like I didn't suffer enough consequences for my <sighs> actions or that they thought that I like slept with too many people, which I'm just like, there isn't really that much <laughs> sex in the book. I don't know what their problem is, but it's all around that kind of thing. Like, it's like, you, you know, like that, that I just, you know, I didn't, <laughs> oh, I got away with so much. I didn't suffer enough consequences. And it's like, you want to carry the shame here. Here you go. Like, feel free. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not carrying that. it anymore. It's not mine. Fuck off. No, it's yours. You no. carry it. <laughs> and you know, shame is a really powerful, powerful motivator in a very negative way. You know, there's, I think it's like, there's that, that famous Russell Brand quote where he says his gateway drug was trauma. And I'm, I think like, no, my gateway drug wasn't trauma. The catalyst was trauma, but my gateway drug was shame. I mm-hmm. knew how to feel shame. And as awful as shame felt, like it was comfortable because it's what I thought I deserved. It was part of my belief system. And so much of my behavior was sort of driven by reinforcing the beliefs I had about myself. And it was all based in shame. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, because I think a lot about like the kind of therapeutic work I do is very much about like it's like shadow work. Mm-hmm. And so much of the, like, we think about shadow as like the uglier parts or dark parts or like the things that we don't want to deal with. But so much of that shit is only shadow because it's kind of like out of consciousness, whether um, intentional or like uh, subconscious, like it's just like out of what I can even see, you mm-hmm. know, and it's so much of the reason I, I will refuse to see shit is because of shame, which makes it impossible right. to heal. Right. And right. so this idea of like a kind of like a black, like tide kind of oozing over my life like the more the more I get free of that like the more light I literally have and the more ability I have to kind of like change patterns and behaviors and like and and be of service because it's like oh no (laughs) I don't care you know it's like there's so literally lightness you know around that it's why I can talk about I mean you know I wouldn't have been able to write the book like when I was newly sober but I had enough you know the book came out two and a half years ago. So I had like 17 years when it came out, wrote it when I had like 16 years. So like I had time and space from it. Right. So I can talk about all this stuff really openly and it was necessary. I ha- I knew that, you know, if I was going to go there, I had to be willing to be unlikable, which is a big deal for me because I want Mm -hmm. everybody to like me, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I had to be willing to be unlikable on the page and to really be self-aware in moments that I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be self-aware that like I knowingly went and was buying drugs from a 12 year old, you know, I don't want to be aware of that. I, I had so much shame about that. 
But when we kind of examine that stuff and get it out of us, it's not, it's not that it makes it any less horrible, but it's just that like, it's not haunting me anymore. Yeah. And not driving kind of more fucked up shit. I mean, also I'm curious as to like, were you a writer when you were still out there? Like, or Mm -hmm. did you come into recovery as a writer or is that something you kind of developed a practice of in sobriety? So I always wrote, like I have (laughs) journals from the time I was seven. So I didn't think I was a real writer you know, and until I, you know, sort of shifted gears and decided that I wanted to go back and finally finish school and and I wanted to try my hand at like writing professionally, I just didn't have like the confidence to think that I could be a real writer. But the 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 gift that I gave myself is that I kept extensive journals my entire life and through like my teenage years and early 20s had written letters back and forth with my best friend like the longest letters and audio tapes like like Felicity Crazy. like we used to like record <laughs> audio tapes back and forth Love. to each other so she sent she I had kept all her stuff she kept all my stuff so when it came time to write the book she sent me a box with all of it which was such a gift because I have a really good memory despite all the drugs, which people are always like, how do you remember this stuff? I've always had a good memory. I think, you know, maybe I would have been a genius had I not done drugs, but like <laughs> in, in terms of like memorization, but like I have a very good memory, but also I had like primary resources. Now, of course, they're still through my lens, right? I was recording them day of, but it's still you know, it's never going to be completely objective because it was my viewpoint, right? Oh, it's a memoir. I, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> but I had dialogue written down. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I know exactly what I said, <laughs> according to me at the time, you know, <laughs> and what the other person said because I wrote it down. Like, like you know, and then he said, da, 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 and then I said, da, da, da. it was great. It was really, 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 really helpful for sort of verifying things. And then also, I mean, I like, it, it's funny. I mean, there is dialogue in the book that's directly lifted from those journals <laughs> that it was just like a recording. That's awesome. You have that. I know it was very lucky. It was like my younger self somehow knew I would need it one day. A <laughs> <laughs> yes. benevolence for your future self. Yeah. I love that. So, and also, I mean, like part of the reason I reached out to you initially is because you're a fellow horse girl mm-hmm. and yes. a highly competitive junior on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I've returned to the sport mm-hmm. as a sober adult, parent, writer, like, and I'm curious as to kind of the difference in experience between those two lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what I mean, we've gotten <laughs> onto equestrian sports in a few episodes of sober sex, but I'm, <laughs> I'm curious because it's always like, I don't know, like a, a pro, it's, it, it, it usually ends up being, I mean, at least personally, like kind of a profound, like, I don't know, a, a place of a lot of like magic. So I'm curious as to kind of what your experience has been with that. I mean, I think I'm just more conscious of the gifts of horses now. Right. I mean, I, horses, I mean, as, as, as bad as I got in terms of like my mental health and addiction and behavior, I would have been way off the deep end had I not had horses. Um, I tell people that like, for me, horseback riding is like exercise, trauma therapy and meditation in one package. I think that they're, horses are an amazing gift to people 
you create symbiotic relationship of trust with them. And certainly there are a lot of people who approach horseback riding from a, a perspective of sort of like dominating the animal. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I look at horseback riding and not how I like to treat horses. I look at it as like a mutually beneficial relationship. And I think part of the reason that they use horses so often for trauma therapy, especially with young people, you know, they're prey animals, as you know, like they're so sensitive to energy and they, I don't know, they have, you know, horses have this sort of, you know, just intuition for matching what you need energetically you know, I know that there's some horses that like they've been traumatized, so they're they can be wild or whatever. But I'm talking about like let's assume that the horse is not in in trauma itself, right? <laughs> yes. I've just it's you know I was telling somebody that like I was talking to somebody about this last night who had started her daughter in in horseback riding lessons, like uh, you know just as a form of sort of therapy, and and I was telling her like you know even last year I was riding. Um, and it, it wasn't like, I don't even remember what it was, but I was, uh, the, I don't know if it was somebody had died. There was something that had happened. I was sort of upset and I was at the barn and um, was with this horse that I was riding at the time. And and uh, he just sort of came up to me and put his head on my shoulder and we just stood there and I just like cried and the horse just like, like breathed with me, right? And it was... <laughs> it was like a level of sort of like being to being intimacy that is really hard for people with trauma to feel safe having, which is why they're so good for people learning how to like trust again. And I think that like that's an amazing thing. So I don't know. I mean, I am like, oh, everybody should ride. <laughs> Not everybody should ride, obviously. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, I just feel very, very, very lucky that I was able to, as a young person, have horses and to ride. And and um, I mean, I enjoyed the competitive part of it too. But really, it was about that relationship and like the nonverbal communication that still nonverbal communication of just shifting your energy to a part of your body and shifting your weight and not relying on your, you know, the other sort of aids, not, not relying on like direct, you know, just like, just sort of like shifting your leg pressure rather than kicking or like keeping really soft hands and just moderating the amount of tension in your fingertips, like just like all those slight shifts in energy. The subtlety of it is really. Yeah. Which is an amazing thing, right? You're like this small person on this huge creature that could physically could destroy you. And yet you can have this like best friendship. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, and I think about that a lot that like, I, I really appreciate that you know, the idea of without that being way off, further off the deep end, like I feel like mm-hmm. at a certain point, like there was nothing that could have brought me back besides that because it was right. like humans are complicated and frustrating and like, especially as an addict to just be like, you can really find a reason to be like, fuck you to everybody who loves you. <laughs> except, yeah. and, and for me, it was like, except my horse. And and it's, it's always like, what a powerful reflection because like I'd sound, it's, I feel sometimes self-conscious talking about it, you know? Mm-hmm. 
But um, just because it's like <laughs> the horse girl cliche. I know, I know. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like it's such a like what a privilege and what a like I don't know how else I could have possibly like a gotten sober, but also like learn to be human mm-hmm. <laughs> and then continuing like to, to reconnect with that. Like as a, as an adult, like I, I, I realize that as you mentioned, like most of my life I've kind of spent in low key disassociation except mm-hmm. for that place. Yes. It was the only place I was ever present. And <laughs> ever, even in like all my drug using as a teenager, I wasn't riding high, you know, I wasn't, I, uh, well, I mean, I guess there was a period of time where I had like an injury and my trainers had me like taking painkillers and muscle relaxants. It was like, um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I was present and it's such a hard thing for me. You know, I have really bad ADHD. I'm, you know, I, I had this background of trauma and like always just wanting to disassociate. And so being able to like be present and to have my mind only focused on like what's happening in the present. Oh my God. Amazing. I mean, and you know, similarly when I found like doing yoga, like learning how to be in my body again and connect with my breath was really big too. But with horses, yeah, it's like one of the only places that like my brain will like quiet. (laughs) Yeah, Lily recently had an, an equine experience this last weekend too. She came oh, to yeah. visit. So I'm like I'm trying to convert uh, Lily into also being a, an adult horse girl. Wow, <laughs> it is so true. It's like being for me. It's I have a similar thing with scuba diving where it's mm-hmm. like you have to be fully present. But I feel it with horses too, and that's why I right. like it so much. Is because it's like there is no room for anything other than just kind of being there. You have to kind of you have to be present. You know, right. in both of those things. So I think you'll convert me. Um, well, so last question before the Mm -hmm. lightning round here, um, you know, often in 12 step recovery, I know that we talk about a sex ideal and I think Mm -hmm. maybe you would, you remember that, but, um, you know, it's kind of how we want to show up in our sexual or romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. So we ask this often when sober sex guests, um, do you have a sex idea, a sex ideal of who you're growing towards being today? I mean, I think it's, it goes back to like being present because I still, you know, I'm married. I've been with my husband. How long have we been together? We've been together 11 years. Awesome. And married for eight. (laughs) Um, But I still struggle with being always present in my body during sex. Yeah. And um, like EMDR has helped a lot. Mm. Um, But, you know, it was like, sexual abuse and then like I was you know raped as a teenager and like other assaults like it's just you know like adds up <laughs> right over time yeah. and, and so being able to allow myself to be pl- present the entire time is a challenge and it's something that I've worked toward and and that like I and I succeed a lot of the time but it's that, that I guess that's it it's like just being present absolutely it's beautiful yeah. And hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and relatable. <laughs> so uh, we close the show with a lighthearted lightning round. Okay. Don't get too hard. Uh, what is your favorite snack? Oh, my gosh. I guess chocolate. Yeah. Any, um, any preferred, like, variety? It's, a, it's broad. <laughs> I mean, I like everything from, like, really good dark chocolate to, like, 
crappy Hershey's. I mean, like, right. like I love Halloween candy. It's like little <laughs> tiny, little tiny packages, you know, yeah, like awesome. that too. <laughs> and what is your preferred method of down-regulating yourself if you're stressed or anxious? Walking. Oh God. Yeah, me too. Walking. And then like, I always tell New people- York. Yeah. Yeah. Getting outside. It's like, get like being able to go outside. And I mean, like with little kids, I always suggest this, like if they're have, if they're like in the middle of something, just getting them to notice, like, I'm like, Oh, I'm like, look at that tree over there. Like, Oh, look at how tall that building is. Like, you know, how many cars do you think are on the street right now? And just getting them to notice their physical environment. So I do that for myself Well, I'll just go outside and kind of like, like check in with myself about like, what is the temperature what am I hearing? It's like a mindfulness, right? It's kind of just getting yourself back in the present moment. And then the other thing I tell people like in an emergency situation, I always tell us people like going home for the holidays or something like go to the bathroom, turn the faucet on and just let cool water run over your hands and just really concentrate on what that feels like. It cools down your nervous system. Um, that it always works for me if I'm like panicky. <laughs> no, that's really helpful. And like uh, the kind of inverse, like what's the preferred method of upregulating yourself if you're feeling like depressed or low? It's walking too. <laughs> it's I all mean, walking. I mean, walking. It's, it's like Caesar like, Milan. Take the yeah, totally, walk. totally. <laughs> Definitely, walking is like a big thing for me. Like whether I need to, whether I need to, like bring myself out of depression or if I need to calm myself down because it's just getting me out of my head. The second I walk out the door, I live in Greenwich Village. Second I walk out the door, I'm surrounded by people of all ages, you know, a lot of college students and it's just life. It's happening whether I want to be present for it or not. And, and just observing other people will just help me get back to like a center. Awesome. Um, and what turns you on? It can be like creatively Uh, or intellectually or sexually or whatever. Definitely like honesty Mm. turns me on. Like when somebody reveals something and maybe that's the Scorpio me. I love it. Like when people reveal something to me (laughs) (laughs) that maybe they don't reveal to other people. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably like. Like special honesty. <laughs> yeah, like 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 re- like real like That's as intimacy. much as I struggle with emotional intimacy, I yeah. like it when other people open up to me. No, totally. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. <laughs> what is on your bedside table? On my bedside table, let's see, I have uh glasses <laughs> for reading and um I have a couple of books, one of which is like <laughs> it's like the like I like to have something on my Couple, at least a couple of books at all times. Right now, I'm rereading Jane Austen's Persuasion because I haven't read it in a zillion years. And then I'm also about to start reading this book called The X Hex. It's like a dark, witchy, romantic comedy that's oh. supposed to be really <laughs> funny. And it's so out of my wheelhouse with reading. But I'm like, mm. I'm like, this is going to be good for October. It's like a lot of people I know are like, no, it's really, really fun. It's like about like some witch that like puts a hex on her ex. I mean, I only read books about witches, so. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> Thrilling. And um, last question, what do you love? I love my kids. I love my husband, my friends. I mean, 
I just, it's funny. <laughs> I was, not to keep talking about being a Scorpio. I don't know why Do this it. keeps popping in my head. But <laughs> I saw like a meme and they're like, Scorpio's like, um, they're like, it's like part of my personality where like I really love people, but I hate all of them. Like, but I, <laughs> like there's so many people that like annoy me, but I really do love human beings. Like I, I love connection. I love, love, love connecting. And I think part of it is that like I spent so many years just wanting to disconnect that like now it's the opposite. Like I can't get enough of connecting. Like it's the, the biggest gift of writing the book has been connecting with people because of it. It's great. I, I, I like to connect other people together. I like, I just love all of that. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real yes, treat to get to know you. you. Thank you. We cross paths in the real world at some yes. point. Yeah. <laughs> you have to let me know the next time you come to New York. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for definite. Gender identity, recovery, recovery.